I skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it has been. My personal superpower, if there's like one thing that I think is, I'm really good at, I'm super curious. And it, you know, people can write, write, write all they want, but what are people doing? And if there's anybody that's out there doing, they know how hard it is to actually do. One of the reasons that I understood the vision that I had is because I studied perfume, I really wanted to be a perfumer. I studied pastry and um, art, and I knew there were cows nearby. Cause see, I'm a comic who became an actor. So I'm cheap, like, you know, back in the day, like you could only do one thing. One thing. This is Polymathic by 2 p.m. Hello everyone, we have Grace Garcia Clark with us today. Uh, she is a longtime collaborator uh, with 2PM. And ironically, I think that our first interaction with one another was about a year ago. Um, we spoke in a, uh, I guess mm -hmm. the Lean Lux Slack room, we argued about something as it related to Peloton. Um, and the rest was history. <laughs> so uh, before, before I begin anything, I wanted to introduce her and allow her to tell Web, thank you. I'm so excited to be on here. I realize I am not your most typical investor or founder, but hopefully we can have a conversation about some things that are adjacent to the topics you guys usually cover. Listen, I've always known you as someone that's had tremendous ideas. And uh, speaking of those ideas, uh, you know, 2 p.m. published an essay this week. Um, we discussed a few concepts. We discussed English coffee houses. Um, a condition called apophenia, which is commonly negatively associated, but I, I used it in a in a positive context in in, in this essay. Um, I wanted to discuss the idea mm -hmm. of ideas with you and credit, because one thing I've noticed as it relates to you specifically is, you know, we'll have conversations and they'll influence what I write and. Frankly, I've had experiences in the past where like you should have probably gotten more credit for things that I've gotten credit for just because our conversations have been such a, of a great influence on me. And I see that with a lot of folks in the, in the digital slash commerce industries where you're talking to them behind closed doors and you know two days later, uh, you're seeing the work of Grace Clark pop up on Twitter, whether it's directly attributed to her or not. I wanted to discuss how you feel as far as whether or not you're underrated and how you sort of tolerate those <laughs> It's a question I would also pose to you. I think having been a longtime reader of 2PM, the things that I learn from spending time with your content and your thinking are sort of the first entry point for me into some of those theories, linear commerce being one of them a huge one that's like driven a ton of the theory that I put together for clients. So it's something that I think everyone experiences a little bit. On one hand, there's a level of flattery and validation that comes from it. And on the other hand, it can feel a bit frustrating when someone isn't getting credit for the ideas that they come up with. But I choose to look at it as an indicator that I'm on the right path. I'm super new to the world of consulting, but what's driven my entire career, no matter if I'm in-house, working a little bit more independently or, or now completely on my own, is that in looking back 
anytime I've advocated for an early idea, I have been right. That sounds insane. (laughs) And I don't mean it in an overly confident or narcissistic way. I mean that when I see other people whose reach is bigger, whose portfolio is larger and more diversified, who have more seniority and who could have influence over my career, when I see certain people amplifying those concepts or simply advocating for them, whether or not any of it came from me, it gives me a boost of external confidence that I wouldn't get otherwise. Specifically working as an independent operator, there are obvious plus sides. You know them better than anyone. What I miss most isn't the reliability of a balance sheet. It's the learning from people both above, below, and adjacent to me. I've had to put myself on a self-guided curriculum. And that's always been the case. I have been a huge (laughs) fan of MOCs for this reason for a long time. I think it's up to what's an MOC online curriculum, a Coursera, TEDx, masterclasses. It's, I think it's the future of the way people are going to learn. I think Similar to the way that NYU was a little well known for Gallatin, which is a created a self created degree. I think that's what that's one of the benefits of everybody sitting with a device in their hand. If they want to learn and master something, they can, and that's been one of the benefits of having things. I feel a little early to being seeing those shared on Twitter, being discussed by people who I really admire. It makes me feel like I'm on the right track. One one great example is joining Musical.ly, which then became TikTok in 2017. I became obsessed with it and no one else wanted to talk to me about it. It was juvenile. It didn't have direct application to my work. So it wasn't something that my coworkers were particularly excited about. And Okay, let's be honest. You're you're talking about Daris here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is, is Daris. This, um, this was about a year into my into my time at Daris. Okay. And as okay. a small team, you really don't have the advantage of messing around with with random ideas. You're delivering a service, and in client services, you know your output gets a little bit commoditized sometimes. So I realized I had to learn this this app on my own. But very quickly, a month into messing around with that, I realized I wasn't learning about the technical aspects of consumer behavior on a streaming app. I was understanding a totally different way to communicate with each other. I was really interested in understanding how people who, you know, we now call them Gen Z, how they communicate, what they care about, how they shop, but what their values were. And started getting together with people who fall into that age group, asking friends of friends, do you know anyone in high school who would talk to me for an hour? I'll give them a $25 Amazon gift card. Who can help me understand how this next group of people think? I'm dead certain that today, I'm one day going to be reporting into someone who is 13 today. I need to understand how they think. And I'm also interested in the way that the world is going to change based on the way that people younger than us think about moving through the world, think about finances, career, family milestones, think about saving money. Should they save money? Are they going to design their own education plan based on what they can learn on the internet and and then skip out on what we know as traditional college? 
bringing it back to what we were talking about, the way to talk about that was TikTok. I got obsessed, put together this big presentation for the company, presented it at lunch. We had team lunch every Thursday. And I said, we need to be talking about this now <laughs> to put it in, in time. This was August of 2019. So a little bit over a year ago, I walked the entire company through it. No one really knew what to make of it. People were interested, but we couldn't sell it into clients. We weren't content creators. And all we were really doing was being a little bit of a trend forecaster in that way. I ended up taking that deck to a company's conference in Las Vegas and presenting it, which was the first time I was able to feel like just because my current work didn't support something that I knew was going to be true and important, doesn't matter. I need to follow that instinct. I spent the last quarter of last year at Daris trying to get things in a solid place and then took the leap in January and have been following that instinct ever since. That sometimes if you're early to something, it just means that that's your free time to learn about it before everyone else is talking about it. So in that way, I kind of find it to be a benefit to be a little bit of an outsider who feels like maybe, you know, like the strange art school kid in a world of VC. I really respect that philosophy. It takes a lot of patience and humility to believe that. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually working towards that myself. Um, I tend to be pretty defensive when I have ideas or when I have concepts that are widely used, mm -hmm. widely shared. Um, and well, actually it's sort of the inverse. Um, it bothers me when there are very valid concepts or ideas. In your situation, it was the importance of musically turned TikTok. And it bothers me when people don't see it soon. Like, uh, you know, when, when you wait for things to actually materialize into fact before believing the fact, it's always somewhat bothersome for me. Uh, and I'm working through that. I think it's pretty. Uh, pretty amazing that you see it in a healthy way because that's that's pretty <laughs> well it's, it's a bit of advantage that i get to learn from people who have done it before me so i think you're a great example of making that work for you when you spend time evangelizing for an idea one of the benefits of twitter is that you get to do it publicly so you start to build up a little bit of subject matter expertise without having to actually do the work to deliver it because you know frankly like you said if you're early you're not in a position to sometimes do the work we can and i hope later in this conversation we get to talk about what the implications of the live streaming industry in china could mean on western culture those ideas just because they aren't necessarily put into business just yet doesn't mean that they're not valuable and i think if you spend time getting known for something Ben Thompson, obviously, great example of building his business around one initial concept that has implications everywhere. Aggregation theory. I think people look to you for e-commerce thought in that way. And my hope is, is that because I'm very comfortable being in a behind-the-scenes role, if my ideas can trickle up to someone who can evangelize for them and make them happen and support them. That's all I want. I'm, I joke that I'm very comfortable in a chief of staff role. I don't have that drive to be a founder. I don't have a drive to be a spokesperson. I don't want my own byline, which is one of the reasons that I was thrilled to leave the world of editorial. It's not that I'm not confident in my work. 
it's simply that I want the people who are able to drive the most change to be able to do it. It might be one of the reasons that I'm not so particular about getting credit. Although if you really dig deep down in my Twitter, which I certainly hope no one does, there are instances of uh, ill-advised passive aggressive digs at people who I noticed talking about ideas who follow me. So my hope is that they would have seen it. Um, it's hard to not add a little bit of, it's not, it's hard not to insert myself into those conversations and say, that reminded me of what we discussed over DM two weeks ago. Um, but all, but I guess all told, my hope is that the consumer, the consumer tech industry evolves in a way that's both interesting and, and does the least amount of harm for consumers and for brands, sort of everything. I would love everything to slow down and for industries to, for the, for the VC industry and venture, venture back companies in particular to take less institutional funding, which hopefully would take the pressure off the need to grow, expand over a sort. And instead, let brands really super serve the customers that they have. And that means better experience, better brand experience, but understanding the balance of rich, beautiful brand experience for people and gently acquiring new customers in a way that makes sense. It's such a complex industry. And being on the consumer marketing side of it, there's a whole back end that exists you and I have had conversations about the implications of most recently a sort of headless approach to growing a business. I come at it from the consumer side. My, what I need in my partners, at least as a, as a consultant, is someone to help me understand what that might mean for the health of the business, which is really what I guess drives most of my client work right now is I get to meet people as a representative, I guess, of a user, hopefully from that mindset, and allow the clients who are really excellent at product development and demand generation to do what they do best. Interesting. So what's the big idea that you would want to talk about now? Like what haven't you tweeted about or written about or had conversations about behind closed doors that you would bring to light in this forum? If I could tell everybody one thing, it would be that we are kind of living in and building a future that we may not feel super comfortable with just by the way that we move through the world of e-commerce, tech and shopping, everything that we seem to say we fear, we're kind of building in a way. Here's a great example. Just yesterday, I was going back and forth on Twitter with Marco Miranda's about influencer academies in China. Web, you have to link this video in show notes. It's wild. But the comments underneath were variations of this feels like Black Mirror. This is super terrifying. If everyone's an influencer, who's actually selling things? All those questions are super important, but we're getting there. And if we don't question that stuff now, I think we're going to all inherit this world of e-commerce and sort of commoditized social selves without understanding how we got there. But we're doing it right now. I mean, what that video meant to me, which is a video of a bunch of young women in China in class at an influencer academy or sort of three different things. One, the commodification of who we are as people that we're sort of barreling toward a future where every single human is going to become their own affiliate marketer. And we should totally unpack that. 
But the second thing, (laughs) (laughs) the second thing, and and trust me, I want to explain this idea because I want you to go build it because I don't want to do it. Second, there's sort of this invisible fight right now, I think, happening between customer experience and acquisition or demand generation. And that's a problem for, I think, marketers in my position. But more globally, I think this proliferation of live streaming is sort of a leading indicator that asynchronous remote work is the future. And we've seen that expedited, I think, because of COVID. But the way that we're all going to be working together, I think we need to look at the second and third order effects of this. What are the tax breaks for certain types of live streamers? Well, we'll as more people move outside of big cities, which I fully believe they will, will will suburbs be acquired and managed by big companies? Does that mean one day people will be going to Amazon high school? I think we are really racing toward those types of questions. And it's so easy in the day-to-day, especially in my work, to focus on those little tactics. The questions become, should this brand be on TikTok? My mind immediately goes to 10 years. What happens when everybody is an influencer where everybody is monetized what happens when every everyone is our excuse me is everything we're going to do all day just shopping i mean you can very quickly go down a a sort of dark theoretical rabbit hole if you spend too much time on that side of marketing thought but all that's to say i think if we can understand what we're sort of building and in a part of right now it'll make the work better for everybody. So I'm not afraid of having those conversations with my clients. I think it gets us into a bit of a dark place where all of a sudden we're saying, so should we continue to be selling organic food? Are we doing the right thing? But I think I think the point is to be able to ask those questions of each other. But let's get back to something that I think people can actually use. Do you want to talk about how we're all sort of <laughs> affiliate marketers? Uh, I think that's that's an interesting thing to get into. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I think the intersection of I, and listen, I've seen the video that you're talking about. It's it's the collective of women yeah, ring lights. in front of yeah. the lit mirrors. Yeah, the ring lights. I'm so lame that I don't know. <laughs> no, no, don't know. There but, are other so people who you. know this. My point is that the experts need to stay great at what they do and stay curious. Don't don't ring lights are for now. Ring lights won't be a thing in ten years. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that, Grace. Uh, uh, so listen, um, there's obviously a growing segment of society that's focused on influencing the purchase of goods. Um, no, that's not for everyone. It takes it takes a specific personality. You have to be outgoing. You have to be comfortable in front of a camera. But for the vast majority of people, I do believe that they will become mm-hmm. their own affiliates. And, you know, I know we've had these discussions behind closed doors quite a bit where it should be incumbent upon technology companies to enable people to monetize their own demand generation in smart ways. I actually cannot believe that no one has built that type of system that essentially duplicates what you see for larger media companies or for independent media companies, but for the individual. So like, where do you see the intersection between the growth of people built to influence and the potential monetization? I of think the it's the, it has to start with coming at it from a completely different angle because you're totally right. The influencer industry and economy rewards and is built for extroverts or people who can fake it 
people who would essentially be really, really good in a pitch meeting. They're predisposed to crush that type of work. But as an introvert myself and someone who does a lot of discussion about, about brands and recommending, like you said, behind closed doors, I don't see a reason why people should not be getting credit for those types of recommendations. And like, just to make it real, I think I have a great example with you and me over the summer, I was talking about how I wasn't, I wasn't in a really good groove with my sleep. You recommended a product called whoop. I had never heard of it. I hate wearables. Tech, tech, tech based wearables are not for me. That said, I have now referred at least 12 different people to whoop. And because they have a referral program, I don't think I've paid for the service once. That said, I had to proactively do that. I had to give away my referral code and ask my friends to use it. A totally fine process. But imagine what would happen if there was some sort of software that, and this gets a little spooky, and this might be part of why it doesn't exist just yet, that monitors our conversations for us passively. And when I say to someone, you need this sleep tracker, you need this health tracker, someone, that person then gets cookied it can, and they convert. There is some API or system in the world that can speak to the brand and say, these two people need to be engaged in parts of your consumer marketing because they this person just drove a sale for you without you ever realizing it. That's what I mean by every person being their own affiliate engine. It's happening already. People don't get credit, but the brands are also missing out on understanding who some of their most loyal customers are. Right. One hedge against that is the very traditional referral program, but that is so clunky. That is so ugly. And if things can happen behind the scenes, that might be a more interesting way for businesses to explore growing. I, like you said, just do not understand why we seem to be stuck in this incremental, this loop of incremental improvements on things like reviews or referrals. I don't think that's the game anymore. I and I'm I'm hoping that someone is building in in I, I mean I wish someone would be building in public so that we could see this happen in real time. But when you think about the amount of demand you web drive just by discussing companies in 2 p.m., what is your take on that? Like, should 2 p.m. be seen as an affiliate? Should you be seen as an affiliate? Do you think that that gets into data and privacy complications that are so sticky and should be that it's that it's something no brand should be doing. Yeah. <clears throat> Let me speak to that. I mean, listen, I I try to be really fair and balanced, right? I know that's a really <laughs> weird slogan. Uh, but um I you know, I 2PM clearly has a portfolio. I think one great example of this is the fact that yes, I co-founded Mizzen in Maine. However, uh, a founder of Ministry of Supply is very very close to the 2PM community. He's in Polymathic. I give the brand praise whenever they do anything right. I try to be as objective as possible as it relates to the brands mm -hmm. that I feature, right? I don't want to seem as though like I'm advocating for one brand over the other because I tend to say, okay, this brand is doing this right. I'm going to praise that. This brand is doing this wrong. I'm going to acknowledge that even if it's a brand that I have something to do with, which can be very uncomfortable at times. Um, when it comes to concepts, I'm different. If I believe a concept or a direction, I am an <laughs> asshole about it. Like I, like I, I, I know it in my heart, and I will, I will fight you to get you to understand that like I'm right about something. 
So there's a difference. I don't want my I don't want my brand affiliations or my beliefs in brands to be monetized because then 2 p.m. becomes something totally. different altogether. What I what I care about most is that my ideas become my ideas materialize in ways that they can then be monetized by someone else. And if I'm getting paid in some way, shape, or form on the back end of great. those ideas over time, mm-hmm. then that's a plus. That's a plus. That's great. Um, but back to your original point, and I think this is a really interesting thought that like, I don't think you and I have ever spoken about um, behind the scenes. I actually believe that as the affiliate model grows for the individual, the expenses in CX will decrease. And here's why. I think that like, if you are buying something from your Whoop example, you are less likely to return that Whoop or to lambast Whoop on Twitter because I recommended point. it to you. And, it's, and it's, it's something that's personal to your friendships because a friend, rep, a friend said, hey, this is something that I believe in very wholeheartedly. I want you to have it too, right? That, that's a net positive for a brand in ways that I don't think that many people are envisioning. Because if it was more of a, um, of a, of a casual purchase, you'd be more likely to, 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 you know, to reach out to the customer service team and be rude or to hassle them online. Right. And, or and to build on like that, that right? it's so funny you mentioned that because last week I got a text from a friend about their whoop that broke as if I would have the answer to it, which, you know, I did, but what you're making me think about is that not just a reduction in the CX bottom line, but the fact that it's a, it's a bit of like a retention play, but also acquisition. Because imagine this. Imagine that my friend had gone on whoop.com and clicked the chat button if they have a, a chat client. I think they do. Imagine that that opened up a video chat with a real person who is not 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 100% affiliated with Whoop, but someone who is just an existing customer who says, I'm online. If if Whoop wants their customers to talk to someone who has a great experience, let them talk to me. And in that way, the customer can be part more part of a brand's ecosystem, which I think is a, is a net benefit for everybody. But that person might be, like you said, less likely to return something. And even if they're connected with a stranger, as long as that person is not on the brand's payroll in a full-time sense, I think that's just the step removed from a, a step away, a step removed from that brand experience that actually builds trust. There's there's so, so much you can read about really the theory that what a brand wants to say is not what someone hears and that is not what someone wants to hear. And I'm not trying to get us too far off the point here, but I think the idea of letting real people participate more in this system in an on-demand way, especially, really is a is about brands being confident that they can step out of the room and the business can still happen. Brands are so worried about giving up their relation, their direct relationship with the customer. I think we see brands struggle with this when they think about moving from just a Shopify grounded e-commerce plan to selling retail. They're worried about losing their data, which makes sense. And I don't spend so much time on like the programmatic side or the performance marketing side to understand those implications. But 
I am so confident that if brands made it easier and better for real people to talk about them in the right ways, meaning the accurate ways, everything would be lifted. Everything would be a little bit easier. Marketing teams would have an easier go of it. And I'm not sure if you saw this news, but yesterday there was there were a ton of different regulations the Chinese government issued on the live streaming industry, but one of them actually has to do with this. A good example is that the cosmetics company Mac, which is huge here, but specifically really, really big there, they're already doing this. If you go on their website, you actually get put into a video chat with an advisor and conversion, I think reached 47, went up 47% when they started doing this over the summer. So if it's working there, and it usually follows that American consumer tech is just a few years behind. Do you think that certain companies are in a position to be experimenting with that sort of CX augmenting? Uh, 100%. I mean, I think, <clears throat> I think it's just a matter of a platform coming along to, to build that system as a plugin for brands that are prepared to use it. Um, I, I think that what you've mentioned is brilliant. Um, I want to sort of make a point here. Unless you've had to build an audience, sell things, advise people from a comms perspective, how to reach people, these, like, these realizations don't come to you, right? Like if you've been in the CX industry your entire life, all you see is solving problems right. through the lens of CX. Or if, if you've been... Uh, solely in uh, the brand marketing side of business. All you see is uh, building, you know, ad funnels to drive conversion um, mm -hmm. through the lens of ROAS, right? Like that's, that's, how, that's how this digital industry works. Like you specialize so much that if you just take a step back and look at things through the lens that you are looking at, looking at it through, you'll see that there are ways to sort of like cross-pollinate disciplines to build better systems. 100%. I think the polymathic community had a conversation this week about the pros and cons of adopting a headless approach. Those types of conversations, I think specifically in polymathic are what I want brand marketers especially to have an easier time finding because in what other world am I going to interact with someone who is a super success successful VC, someone who has started a started several companies you and now runs their own media operation and then someone who is basically me but in 10 years never would that happen so i think there is an argument to be made for sort of a maybe a, a younger or mini polymathic um a way for for people to get you know to sort of subscribe and see the benefits of this generalist intersection way earlier in their careers because I graduated into the world of content consulting and marketing, having been trained pretty specifically in very narrow disciplines. And it took me putting myself on this self-guided education plan for lack of a better way to say it, to open my eyes. But I had a couple of people along the way who were so generous and not just turning me on to things, you know, 2pm got recommended to me by someone. And, and really like evangelizing for the practice of spending an hour each morning reading. The more I study and the more I look at concepts that have nothing to do with 
what I would be delivering to a client, the better my work is. But I think as we build our early careers, that's trained out of us. That curiosity is not rewarded because with the example of where I was at before I was doing my own thing, I couldn't, I wasn't really, you know, encouraged to pursue emerging forms of media simply because I couldn't build clients for it just yet. I created several different models of what we could sell into clients. And it's actually a huge part of my business now, which is creating small closed door advisories that are not monetized. They are not influencer groups, but what I deliver to clients is 20 super different people who would evangelize for their product if they were marketing to those groups of people. Those be, those are once a month sort of Zoom meetings that I lead where we talk about everything around the product. The point is not to ask people, this brand makes a financial product. What do you think about money? It's to understand what's happening in their lives when they are not thinking about where the product fits in. The more we understand about someone's whole world, the easier of a job everyone in a business will have communicating that to them because we plug into that secret world, which is where really decisions are getting made. I don't care about Whoop's technology. I just care that it solves the problem for me, which is I feel like shit and I'm doing everything that I need to be doing. Whoop got me to quit drinking and to go to bed early. Those two things have, by a factor of 10, changed my work. But Again, that gets back to what we were talking about. If we're not curious and we're not reading other things and we're not interacting with people outside of our immediate worlds, there's so much we're going to miss because we can't immediately monetize those activities. They get deprioritized. You made some really interesting points. I want to revert back to one of them that we sort of glazed over. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the concept of an earlier polymathic, essentially, a community where you can focus on generalism. Um, yeah. here's my apprehension. Here's what I've seen. Uh, the reason why polymathic is built the way that it's built, meaning it's typically more senior people is because, uh, to be truly curious, you have to be free of ego. And listen, no one's fully free of ego. I'm, I'm assuming that you have to have somewhat of an ego to have any mm -hmm. sort of success, ego in the context of confidence and self-assuredness. But if you are accomplished enough, then you're no longer trying to prove your value right. to other people. You're trying to prove your value to yourself. And so the difference between what I hope to build in polymathic and what I typically see is, you know, um, the, the majority of communities are essentially extensions of Twitter in the context that you post something and then people say, good job, right. good job, good job. Like, we acknowledge you, we acknowledge you. I don't want that, right? It's why we have such an analog sort of format for 2 p.m. in the context that the only real way to respond in polymathic is through, like, text-based communication. Like, I want to hear your mm -hmm. thought about something. I want to acknowledge why you think about something, not that you thought about something. And so if there is ever a way to build a generalist model for communication in a community, you would have to pattern match for people that if they are young, they're willing to be curious and they're willing to share information, not for acknowledgement or praise, but because it's truly 
something that enables more thought and cur- uh, m- totally, more thought and curiosity. Totally. And, and I'm sort of arguing with myself here. I wish that idea existed, but somehow I managed to sneak into this discord called Gen Z Mafia. If anyone reads Taylor Lorenz, they'll be familiar with that term. It's a discord channel, invite only. It is essentially, <laughs> it is what polymathic would grow into. Those people are there, but by by virtue of them growing up, you know, they're about 18 now. By the time they're 40, hopefully the group would be called down to people who are just truly curious, generous people, because the way it functions right now is highly transactional. Everybody in there is only looking for connections and looking for help. It's have you used this ESP? People are already talking about NetSuite and they're 19 and 20. But the reason that I bring that up is because there's such a focus on hustle culture And no matter how many people our age, meaning 30, 40, 50, try to push older. Yeah, I feel super old, Web. I'm 34. But the more we push back on that and say, hustle culture is so outdated. Sleep is important. Everyone needs to to realize that balance is going to be the way to actually skyrocket your work. The group sort of younger than us, this incoming class of builders, very real founders now, they don't think that way. They still want that burnout feeling because it is so pushed as an indicator of drive that if someone works and burns themselves out, they will achieve the like all the all the only conversation right now that morning this morning is Salesforce and Slack. That's what I worry about this younger group of people aspiring to rather than this sort of deep commitment to real generalist learning it's it it makes me a little bit concerned for the way that new companies are going to grow and i really wonder about the life cycle of companies are companies going to is it going to be okay that someone starts a company it's successful for five years it either gets acquired or shuts down is are we seeing an expedition of that in a shorter life cycle for companies and our founders approaching things knowing I want to create a brand just so I can have an exit. That's the type of conversation that I'm seeing in Gen Z mafia. And I don't know exactly what to make of it just yet, but I I try to find some sort of connection between that thinking and how these people shop and what they care about and, and you know, how they vote, how they move through the world. It's something you probably see it a little bit more up close because you have a daughter who is, you know, 12 or 13. So you're getting to see a little bit of this, in real time. 13 That's next crazy. week. It is. It is pretty wild. Um, I'm you should run these ideas by her. As a 37-year-old father. Uh, she actually doesn't <laughs> listen to me, but I do listen yeah. to her ideas quite a bit. And, uh, you know, to your earlier point, she was, she was hip to Musical.ly when I thought that it was a stupid app. And then it became TikTok. And it's all she talked about, and I completely ignored her validation of the technology. And then two years later, obviously, you know, you have Turner Novak making you have the Demilios being being a whole enterprise, right? And it's just a matter of understanding, going back to curiosity, understanding that you're not the expert in everything. Um, and as the world continues to develop 
a digital space around all of the formerly analog industries, it's most likely that we're not experts in anything. And we're, we're having to relearn these entire systems and how like formal physical retail or traditional media or traditional communication and community <clears throat> are translating into digital, digital spaces. The kids are actually the catalyst there. Like they're 100%. the teachers at this point. And if we're not willing to learn from them, then we're, we're setting ourselves for setting ourselves That's up why for failure. One of the things I put into every single proposal I send is really pushing for this sort of listening tour. I really want to be building my clients these monthly opportunities to engage with people who don't look like their current customers. Even if the whole year we don't get a single insight that can impact the product roadmap, I still think it's a value add because clients are able to hear about things earlier and at least be primed for when they finally spend time on 2 p.m. reading about a theory that they had been ignoring for a really long time. They'll, they'll have a little bit of familiarity with it. But you brought up something that is on my mind a lot as I think about the balance between physical, digital, sort of abstract real estate for retail. And I won't get us down the rabbit hole of AR retail, but that's obviously something I care a lot about. If you've spent any time with Pokemon Go, your mind should be exploding right now. But what is going to happen to all of these empty storefronts? What, like these humongous malls. I'm spending time in the suburbs right now, outside of, you know, away from New York. Every mall is so dead. When, when are those spaces going to be changed and what do they become? Do they become residential? Do they become fulfillment centers for Amazon? Do they, do they become different types of malls, community centers? What, what is the dream here? <laughs> well, obviously you're, trig <laughs> you're triggering me here and I, I won't go over too much, but I will say this, it, it, it will depend on where you live. Um, listen, I think that malls in general will contract in volume, but there will always be a need for the top, let's call it 200 malls in America. People will always want somewhere to go. We are physical, mm -hmm. social beings. Like we have to be, we have to be in physical places with people. Um, that being said, the vast majority of malls will not serve a purpose any longer. And there's only so much redevelopment into residential spaces that you can execute before you have too much of a surplus. You know, I've written about this extensively in the past. We are over-retailed because we had this great idea in the 50s to build suburbs around cities so that certain people could move mm -hmm. outside of the cities right. to live in those suburbs. And then we had another great idea to build entire retail complexes for every suburb outside of every city. And we never thought that, you know, we would never have the demand to meet the foot traffic needs of those, of those buildings. And we're at a place now where, going back to the previous 40 minutes of our conversation, we are agglomerating in digital spaces now, more, more likely than we are in physical spaces, especially during times like this in a pandemic. And that means that foot traffic has shifted from physical to digital. And that means that there's no longer a need for a lot of the buildings that we relied upon just 10 or 15 years ago. What that means is that there's going to be a lot of empty spaces. And those empty spaces are going to begin to affect residential real estate in the middle class areas that no longer have those top tier malls. 
And I don't know what that means beyond the fact that it's probably going to lead a, lead us into depending more on digital right, than ever before. Right. And I, if I could snap my fingers, there are some here in St. Louis where I am that I wish I could turn into healthier versions of WeWork because as I've been working remotely and so many people have, and I think that's the way a lot of this is going to stay, once there's a vaccine and it's safe, I do think people will miss that in-person experience that you mentioned drove the formation of some of our early shopping centers in the first place. That serendipity of in-person interaction and frankly, that fuel for us as physiological beings, sentient beings, it is healthy to be around people. And it would be terrific, I think, for some of those places to become more flexible co-working options or at least have some eye toward what community can look like as people disperse from more urban centers and start to move back to suburbs, which I think will happen. Yeah. I agree. Kind of like your conversation with Derek Thompson. And I think that argument was so fun to listen to because both of you came at it from such different convicted points of view about what we're living through right now, what history books will be in 10 years if we even have history books. But that's a whole other conversation. Well, to your point, I think it's been a brilliant one. And I want to thank you for taking the time to show everyone just how great you are and how amazing of a thinker you are. Um, I know that this is certainly going to uh, educate and enable the audience. Uh, I think people are going to learn a lot. And I hope that um, someone takes this and runs with it. And someone, something please great take my it. ideas. I don't want to build things myself. I, I want to feed it, feed it all to other people. But moreover, I think when you and I talked about doing this podcast, because I am such an unconventional type of guest for the people that you get to have conversations with. My hope is that it's almost an advertisement for what you're doing in polymathic, which is bringing people together who, yes, pass a sort of test of expertise, reliability, consistency, and contribution to a community. But I could imagine someone who is who runs a gallery and does marketing for David Zwerner, for example, being just as at home in polymathic as some of the people who have built companies and had several successful exits. To your point, it, I mean, actually getting back to the original idea that it is the way to create that experience of a Renaissance era coffee house where people are sharing ideas that they wouldn't normally get. So that's really my hope is that this conversation in a way proves out the value of what you have known since the day that you decided to create polymathic. Well, I think the common thread of all of this, of all of this conversation is that ideas are powerful and that you have great ones. So Grace, I want to thank you for being here. Uh, everyone, thank you for listening. And uh, if you want to reach out to her for <laughs> her ideas and how to execute them, I'll make sure that uh, I post your Twitter account, you know, um, beneath this it. episode thank you for having me web appreciate it